This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Tuesday the 14th of February. With me today I have a leading fund manager Richard Staveley. After qualifying as an accountant, Richard joined the boutique investment house Bradshaw Asset Management in London. Positions at Sockgen, River Mercantile, Majedi and Gresham House followed. Richard is currently lead fund manager of Rockwood Strategic, a UK specialist small company's equity strategy under the Harwood Capital umbrella. Rockwood Strategic's share price total return was up over 30% on one year against the UK Smaller Companies Fund down 13.4% and Rockwood was up 76% over three years against the sector down 2.1%. Richard also holds non-executive positions at Central Media and Bonhill Group. Richard, welcome. Hi, Nick. What first got you interested in finance? Well, it probably sounds a bit superficial, but I watched um, Wall Street, the great sort of Gordon Gekko and Bud Fox film. I, I think it came out in 87, but I don't think I went to the cinema to see it. I saw it at home. And I just remember thinking, this is just so exciting. I don't think I even really understood the moral, the, 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 the moral messages they were giving at the time, but the excitement of, of, the, of Wall Street and markets, which was my family had no background in at all, just made me curious. I then went on to find some work experience, um, which is quite tricky to do, given the parents were typically the people trying to help you with these sorts of things and ended up um at smith newcourt which was a leading stockbroker in the in the 19 late late 80s early early 90s eventually bought by merrill merrill lynch and i absolutely loved the markets there as well so they encouraged me to um go into accountancy and as a good basis for for investing and that's what i did so after uni i took the plunge and went to Coopers and Librand and did my three years literally hard labour, uh, crunching it out in audit, learning about how financial statements work. And I think um, that that made me realise the importance of, of, uh, of sets of accounts, financial statements, yep. but equally um, the bug was there. This wasn't quite as exciting as markets, so um, I, I left soon as I qualified. And then to join Mark at, at Bradshaw? Yes, yes, to join the amazing Mark Bradshaw. He, he'd worked at Mercury Asset Management for many years, was a top fund manager, and had sprung out on his own to create a one of the earliest um, pan-European long-short hedge funds. He needed a sort of a, uh, old-style uh, apprentice, really, to sort of help to help him. It was a, it was a great time. I, I started in 1999, mm-hmm. so... It was bubble tastic. Uh, I was, I remember. So that'd be dot com bubble, I guess. Full dot com bubble. Um, Schiller, US 
PE ratio is about 44 times. Um, Nokia, for those that remember Nokia, Nokia was valued at 130 billion pounds at that point. As we know, the brand doesn't exist anymore. Um, Apple at the t same time, Apple at that time was valued at um, 6 billion market cap uh, and had sales of 5 billion. Yeah. Um, so, but it was crazy and you, it, it, time and quite a lot to sort of take in as relatively young and inexperienced, but quickly saw what greed was and the power of greed in markets, the power of the herd, um, the ability for very more experienced people than me to suspend sort of critical thought of what was going on to extrapolate out, which is what that all bubbles are about, just a massive extrapolation, aren't they? And it was good at Bradshaw because Mark was very much into absolute return. And, and that sort of focus on it's about making money and not losing money and absolute return, I think has actually been with me ever, ever, ever since. He, he sent me, I remember he sent me on my first company meeting to go and see a company called Alba, um, which was a consumer electronics business, um, owned the Bush brand and Goodman's mm. brand. These are not brands that are particularly highly thought of or even even then. And to, to remember, cause they, so I went on my first visit, I, I got there and they were, they were unveiling their internet TV, which is their first ever internet TV. And the market was super excited. The shares went up. You know, loads because it just yeah. mentioned the word internet. I think they they predicted they'd sell a half a million the following year to be in two thousand in the year two thousand probably, and they ended up selling one hundred eighty thousand and writing off seventeen million quid profits with nineteen million quid the previous the previous year. But I but I also remember again there was all this sort of other stuff going on at that time which has always sat with me when, when you have these bubbles like we've more, more recently yeah. have. So everyone remembers TMT as being 99, 2000, 2001, which is when I was at, at Bradshaw. But actually, the gold price was below $300. And the oil price got to $9. And I remember Mark invested in this uh, emerging oil company called Tullow Oil at the time. And it was capitalized about 150 50 million and it did it did quite well as the oil recovered because you know lo and behold by by 2002 the oil price had already tripled was back up to 35 dollars i think then i i moved to sock gen uh and you you nick you might remember some of these char characters but uh all brilliant fund managers in fact um um, but the famous Nicola Horlick, mm -hmm, uh, known as Super Super Mum, and she was a Super Mum, and uh, a very creative and brilliant investor called John Richards, who was co-CEO with her. And I worked with some other really interesting people, uh, like Adrian Gosden, who built up the uh, income fund with a uh, Adrian Frost after he left uh, SockGen. But it was there where I met Hugh Sargent. Uh, he was brought in to sort of turn around UK performance. Uh, alongside a guy called Mal Malcolm Murray. And Hugh was, um, it was a kind of bit of a revelation because he introduced me to value properly, what value really meant and what recovery investing was. And it really chimed, chimed with me. And he is just absolutely brilliant at it. And as a result, it's really, everything started to come into place. My accountancy was starting to become more useful to me. My understanding of 
fear and greed was becoming more useful. And it was there that Hugh gave me my first fund, which is the SOTGEN, Smaller Companies Fund, and um, told me to sort of, you know, crack on and try and uh, uh, generate, generate some returns. It was a UK Smaller Companies Fund, but frankly, I would have sort of taken anything to get yep. in charge of your first fund. But very quickly realized that UK Smaller Companies is a fantastic uh, part of the market, uh, where you've practiced for many, exactly. many, many years. Exactly. Um, and you know, it is, it, it's, it's changed in many ways, but in other, in, in other ways, it's just the same. It's completely inefficient. You consistently get stocks that are just massively ignored or mis mispriced. The coverage was actually still quite poor then. It's now basically non-existent exactly, uh, yeah. because of the MIFID II changes. But even then, you could relatively quickly learn a lot more. I remember I was invested in a few quite interesting stocks, given what they've done since at the time. I remember uncovering a couple of engineers. Uh, one was called Rotalk. One was called Spirex Sarco. Mm -hmm. And I remember for the Rotalk one, I went down on my own for a site visit and had lunch with the CEO in the canteen. And it was a brilliant, it was obviously a brilliant business. It's on a P of 10 and, you know, bought those for the fund, 200 million market cap. Uh, I remember there was a company called City Sensor Restaurants, which had built a small concept called Frankie and Benny's. It's 30 million market cap at the time. Again, um, it ended up becoming restaurant restaurant group later that was you know a billion yeah. billion pound company. But um, what did happen was I sort of emboldened by Hughes' recovery sort of teachings as were. I stumbled across a tech company that had been in the fallout from the TMT crash called uh, Innovation Group. It had been run by a guy called Rob Terry who um, had. Over, over promised, got himself, shall we say, into um, an accounting pickle with mm -hmm. Innovation Group in terms of recognition of profits and potentially his cash generation. And as a result, it has sort of really gone to, um, you know, very, you know, it had collapsed. And they needed a rescue rights issue in about 2002, something like, like that. And I remember buying a huge position. Uh, encouraged Hugh to do the same at 5p a share. And um, he, we obviously, ter Terry was uh, off-ski. Yeah. Um, and within within two and a half years, uh, I, I sold all the shares at 50p a share, and I got my first 10 bagger. And now, one, all fund managers love their 10 baggers, but you don't get many of them. But the first one's really, really important because it makes you sort of realize what is possible in this wonderful thing, that uh, the stock market. So... Um, interestingly, it also shows the short memories of of, of uh, investors and the stock market because guess what? Uh, many years later, when I was at River Mercantile, Rob Terry appeared again in a new company called Quindell yes. um, doing a not dissimilar business model, which went on the high M&A front. And I can remember at the time going, this guy is, you know, this is not going to end well, raising the hands. But they were in a, they were in a momentum of M&A and upgrades. And, and the shares performed well for, for a while. They did. They? they performed well. So there was a period where people were unknowingly dicing with death, but making, making money. Um, and eventually you did get, uh, it went completely wrong um, yet again. Uh, I suppose, you know, long me memories, memories really important in it. Uh, um, in investment, I, I think, or at least remember thinking about the, the, the cycles. Um, it was also there that I then at SOCGEN, I 
did supported Tullo's uh, now as my I sort of controlling the position now um, acquisition of Energy Africa. By now, it's about a four hundred million pound company, uh, million pound company, um, and we were getting into the su- the super cycle. Was starting to move. The the acquisition actually was brilliant. It was a brilliant exploration portfolio that Tello had bought. But China was just getting going. I'd I'd always been a bit of a China fan. Straight after university, I went to China mm-hmm. in ninety six. Just you know, give a sense of it. The China's GDP in ninety six was eight hundred and sixty two billion. It's now eighteen trillion. <laughs> and you know that move from that size economy has just had this huge, huge impact in the in the super cycle, um, which I was fortunate to again watch participate in to an extent and and uh, kind of learn learn from. And um, I went out to China in two thousand and two uh, after they they um, joined the World Trade Organization, which which was really the kind of I think the what, what got it really got it going yeah. after Deng Xiaoping's um, reforms, and just thinking these guys are just going to absolutely, um, it's you know everyone's quite skeptical. Like all trends early on, everyone's very skeptical, and then gradually as the trend continues and continues, people get in with the narrative, you know, throw their lot in, can't can't take the pain of not being involved, and by the end of the it's cycle, all about that fear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So. Um, yeah, so that was that was Sokgen, and then from Sokgen to Majedi. No, actually, no. Sokgen was straight to oh, River uh, and Merck. Yeah, River Sorry. and Merck. So apologies, yeah. I missed out River and Merck. No, no, don't miss them out. That was the that was the most exciting bit actually because we, uh, Hugh and I were looking for something entrepreneurial. I'd always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. You meet all these entrepreneurs as a fund manager, and I'd always seen the what that can do. Um, in terms of um, um, fulfillment and reward and the excitement of it. And Hugh and I kind of wanted to do it. So we decided to leave and set up uh, River and Mercantile from scratch alongside some other, it was a partnership model, uh, James Barham and um, Mark Thomas doing the distribution and, mar- and marketing. And um, a very good friend of mine, Dan Hambry, I brought in, who's a, you know, a very good investor and was also had developed a lot of insight into quantitative techniques and um, understanding um, momentum in, in, in investing and really complemented Hugh, Hugh and I in terms of how we approach, approach markets. But we literally had nothing, no money under management. We, we got support from the fantastic British property entrepreneur, Sir John Beckwith, who uh, um, basically took half the company and had the brand on the shelf at the time mm-hmm. as a dormant brand. And we sort of brought the, the energy, the intellectual capacity and, and the desire to sort of build it. He was a brilliant uh, backer and was back to lots of other successful businesses as a, as a result, was um, sufficiently hands-off but sufficiently guiding the tiller um, that we didn't feel was sort of uh, moving some bossed around or anything like that could could crack on, but was terribly supportive because obviously starting it in 2006 with no money was quite good for the first phase, but the business plan didn't include the great financial crisis yep. three years later with a loss-making uh, fund management business. But um, from acorns grow oak trees is the Rockwood uh, um, phrase, actually. And we we were managed to take market share during the during the financial crisis. So we continued to build uh, build the business. I was running the small cap fund. I'd launched an income fund, and we we 
took the business up to a couple of couple of billion under under management, which I was terribly uh, proud of. Um, I remember two things about that phase that I think uh, I look back on and were really interesting because, as you know, I'm a kind of value investor and I really um, believe in value. And there was at that time. We also went through, after the, the banking crisis, it obviously went into the pigs crisis, the mm-hmm. European debt crisis, pigs remembering for Portugal, Italy, Greece, and, and Spain. Uh, Greece, Greece at the worst point in 2015, its 10-year, 10-year guilt, its 10-year sovereign yields were 19%. In, in 2021, people pay, were paying half a percent yep. to lend money to Greece. I think that's quite interesting about how people's perspectives of of risk and can be can be the extremities and how they can change over over time. And sure enough, if you were brave enough, there was an absolute fortune be made by buying um, uh, Greek Greek debt at the right point in that in that in that change in circum- circumstances. Um, my own sort of hero uh, investment at the time. Uh, remember, Hugh did. Hugh, Hugh invested too. Actually, was in um, Ashted, yep. uh, now in the FTSE 100, uh, which was doing what it does in, in as much as you know, uh, plant hire, uh, was quite leveraged and was exposed to the US. And as a result, people just hated it. They, were, you know, worried it couldn't get refinanced and all the rest of it. But they did re- do a re- they did announce a re-signing of their banking arrangements where they did a an asset-based lending um, deal, which meant that they could flex the plant to deal with what was coming next. So even though we weren't sure what the economic outlook was going to be, you 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 know they the financial risk had materially uh, changed, and we were buying the shares at, in two thousand and nine at thirty p. They're now fifty six pounds a share. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know it's a stock market, isn't I it? Remember. Just an amazing, yeah. wonderful thing, exactly. wonderful thing, and you know. Um, I, I was I did look the other the other day I was looking at you, you, obviously you, housing's on the news at the moment both in the US and the UK I'm pretty bearish actually on UK housing and I was looking at US US housing the the median home price in 2007 in the US which is just before it all crashed was quarter of a million bucks Me, median US new home not mm-hmm. secondary but new yeah. new home um, that's now Four hundred eighty thousand yeah. dollars. So, uh, but again, again, market. It looks like a blip on on house prices. What what happened in that in, at, that, at that time? Anyway, but um, performance is good. Um, funds did did well, and um, I was um, very. Someone nominated me for invest, uh, investor of the year in two thousand. Uh, Twelve, which I felt was quite a vindication at the time, because the financial crisis had been quite cha- yes. quite challenging uh, phase for performance, and and then I after after that, Majedi came came calling in 2013, and said, um, you know, would would I would I like to come to Majedi and run their small um, do their small cap in- investments? It was a very difficult decision to make. Um, still to this day, I'm never quite sure whether I did exactly the right thing or not but um we were at two billion we sort of survived the financial crisis but things were you know quite still quite challenging and and Majedi was the number one uk boutique yes. had about seven billion under management at the time 
and I, I decided to, to, to go to go for it. They seem to have a very strong book of business, the right kind of client base that would support um, me. And, and also there was no um, kind of in-house philosophy that meant I couldn't invest as I, as I, as I wanted. So that was, that was very important to me. So I, I moved and um, got, got cracking, as did Majedi, which in relatively short order, grew its AUM from 7 billion to 15 billion under management. And you know, within three years, I was running a 900 million pound yeah. small cap fund all on my own, um, which was, um, should we say, challenging to say, to say the least. Um, it got more challenging, actually, because uh, we had the little um, issue of our relationship with the EU. <laughs> so I joined, I joined in 13. First period was sort of fine. Yep. Market, if you remember, Nick, had, we, you know, we were QEing, so it was good, but we weren't um, super growth. Yep. We, weren't in, we hadn't blown off. So growth stocks was, were re-rating, but it wasn't crazy stuff yet. But then you got to about six, you got to the, the Brexit result. And th this is my version of events anyway. The result came, came through and two things happened. Everyone went, we're not interested in um, UK. Yep. And secondly, we're taking less risk. And to do that, that meant you bought more and more of the growth stocks. In, in, in the mind of the average in investor. And what you didn't do was buy UK domestics and things like that, where uh, I was quite exposed to. So value, the value versus growth jaws were just widening and widening um, to um, in, the, in the final years of uh, Majedi, which was um, pretty, pretty difficult. It was interesting, Bar Barrett's had got up to one and a half times book at that point. Um, but in the '09, it got down to point two of the yes. book. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it was. It was. Uh, they were good years. Very challenging. And eventually, I left and uh, went to uh, Gresham House. Yeah, which is a completely different animal. Completely different. Um, obviously, it's primarily an alternatives asset manager. They uh, they they focused on sectors which have um, much higher fees than you can charge in kind of normal equities these days it's much higher fee rates uh, and uh, uh, they've got good exposure to kind of tax advantaged asset classes they i'd, I'd actually helped uh, grow the, the business mm -hmm. from a an investor perspective i'd actually bought uh, 10 percent of gresham house whilst at majetti when it was about 25 million market cap and um, funded their acquisitions, the forestry acquisitions, and, a, and another one of the acquisitions they did um, to help, you know, build build the build that that the inorganic side of the of the business. So I knew them knew them well, and it was why it was it was a kind of natural move when I when I went when I went there. Um, what why I went there was because they had this really interesting, quite small investment company closed-end investment company which was whose mandate was uh, value uk small cap which was was great tick tick yep. um but it was also uh, concentrated and engaged i not active with a big a yep. but uh, engaged with a big e and that i was i'd been thinking for some time that if UK equities are going to play any role in people's portfolios other than in the tracker, 
in the rest of my career, we are going to have to be a lot more active and engaged to be differentiated from just highly diversified portfolios. Exactly. Yeah. And B, we are going to have to force ourselves to be much more concentrated in the portfolios that we run, a lot more active risk. Um, at the moment, most of the money in small cap is still in open-ended funds, where the constant worry of your you know, favorite wealth manager losing faith and then pulling all his money out the next quarter sits, sits with you. And you obviously don't want that to happen. And a lot of the wealth managers are, very, are loyal and very loyal. But the reality is, is that when the tough periods of performance happen, if you're open-ended, it can yeah. really death spiral. And there are lots of famous um, situations where that's, uh, that's occurred. But closed end, you, you, it's semi-permanent capital and I, I i had this sort of revelation that berkshire hathaway is an yeah. investment trust i think i told you about it at the time you know it is an investment trust and there is a reason why warren buffett's done so well it's not exclusively that for obvious reasons but i think the fact he's got closed end capital is really really important and when you actually start looking in the weeds of some of the other best investors in the world and and also some of the best investors in the world that had open funds. And then the moment they've made enough money, they give all the money back to everyone else so that they don't have to answer yeah. to anyone else's concerns. at the home. Bluecrest, Oak Tree, there's a list of Soros. Them. Soros, exactly. Mm. And those guys know that the it is like, like Michael Burry in The Big Short. It is the external pressures which... which caused the biggest problems when you, uh, you know, uh, at the most stress, stressful time. So closed end, I think, really attunes, and it attunes to small cap investing because it's illiquid. So you can, and it takes time. Yeah. You know, it takes yeah. a number of years. Much longer duration, I guess. Exactly. So, so that really attracted me. So I went in, the fund had um, been, it'd been okay. It had been underperforming other small cap uh, funds, the general small cap market, and then numerous index. And I went in in, in late 2019, and I don't want this. Isn't this feels this feels next if it's like something that every time I move within a short period of time, there's some form of crisis where uh, wherever I go, which I wouldn't want you to <laughs> want you to think. But well, there seems to be a correlation of one at the moment. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's uh, but um, 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 I lose my train of thought actually. But with um, with Gresham, yeah, it was COVID. Yes, of course it was. It was COVID. So COVID hit in 2020. But this was where I was starting to really get into my stride about what these market events are. And rather than be you know, sitting on startled in the, in the headlights or making excuses why you haven't done any investments yeah. or not really doing it, I got super active in, in 2020, did a number of investments for the fund, and um, which, paid, which paid off. I think the one I'm probably most proud of so far although a couple of those investments are still in the still in the in the fund was was rps mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. and this again shows you i've followed the company for 15 years you get to covid it's an environmental consultancy it's a people business covid not good um and you know for them and they had to do a rescue what did you was that sort of 30p 40p it was 44p was yeah. the rps so went in a, to refire 44p it's finishing it's being taken over now literally two years later at two pounds 22 
It's just, it, I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, the other two that I still have in the port in Rockwood's portfolio are MC Saatchi, which got down to 50p, accompanied with COVID. It was also accounting scandals and the need for management uh, change. And another really interesting um, distribution company called Flowtech Fluid Power, which also um, was sold off heavily during the during the COVID period. Um, what then happened next was that um, I decided to resign from uh, Gresham House uh, and the chairman of the trust I was running also resigned from the trust. And the, the, the trust um, did a uh, strategic review and uh, terminated the contract with Gresham House and awarded the contract to Harwood, which is where, as you said earlier, I've yeah. now moved. So I've now uh, come back to running, running the fund after a brief interlude um and uh, sort of trying to take it take it forward so now the fund is rockwood strategic so it's sort of the the embers is that the right word of of the gresham fund and ultimately you know, how much is yeah how much do you run in that fund so rockwood strategic's about 50 million pounds now which is small which is good which means we're nimble uh, it remains close end. We we moved it from the aim market to the main market lo, uh, late last late last year. It's still doing what we were doing before. So we're focused on turnaround, recovery, value, um, small cap opportunities, special situations, right at the bottom of the of, of the small cap uh, market, which is. It's just slightly sad to say it, but it is basically broken. It's mm -hmm. it's yeah. you probably know it's. It's just it's very very few investors that are called small cap funds yep. actually can't invest at the bottom end of the market. If you look in a number of the well-known small cap funds, you'll see they've got billion pound companies. We're looking sub a hundred million. Where are there companies. are great opportunities to fish for? For sure, Ab absolutely, and um, and they really they really uh, most of them, not all of them. Most of them really enjoy the attention, the attention, and the offer of potential capital as well alongside our investment. And because we're closed, then we can say we can give them. We're doing this on a medium-term basis. We're not just in for a, a term. We want to help support them, and we want to be part of the change that's that's often often re required for them to come through. I I I checked before we had this interview. I had a look, and the 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 Numis index which covers the bottom 10% of the market when when I started in 96 was 860 is the according to the yep. latest yep. stats the that index total return is now 8300 now just to put that in context the FTSE 100's gone from 4000 to 8000 yep. and it, on a total return basis is up about 340% the small cap effect is unbelievable. It's brilliant. It's sustained. And you can see it across markets over the long term, which most of us have. But, or if we don't have it, our grandchildren do or, or our children do. And, you know, exposing portfolios to UK small cap makes huge amounts of sense. The problem is, is that if you look at the industry's um, so, you know, players now, They've got so much money. They've yeah. got trillions. I mean, there's, there's loads of trillion dollar managers now. And you can't put all the clients into UK small cap. It's just not enough. So people are ending up not being exposed to one of the best and proven sustainable markets. Not only that, but it's become more inefficient. So it's even, 
it actually makes the job a little a little easier but yes. i wouldn't want to say yeah. easy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and i guess also post mifid there's just there are, there's less research there's less broker interest <coughs> at that end of the market um so it does give you uh, a very clean playing field really you can you can become the, the most knowledgeable person on the, on a business relatively quickly now in the microcap end of the end of the um market one of the uh, big investments that i did last year at harwood uh, was uh, a company called rm say educational services and technology business that got itself into a pickle last year uh, botching up an erp system uh, rollout mm -hmm. at the same time as trying to consolidate their warehouses and it went really badly and they'd planned to go into debt to finance this but when it went really badly it meant the amount of debt they've got has gone much higher than they expected putting financial risk into it not a year for um, upsetting investors and the shares got really really sold off i've followed that company through the entire career that i've been talking about it existed in the yeah. tmt bubble and um you know it has sales of over 200 million but by august of last year the stock market was saying the equity in this business is worth 26 million quid now it it, it just clearly isn't um uh the only way 26 would have been fair would have been if they'd gone essentially gone bust and had a massively dilutive uh, rights issue but the the reality is is the business has long-term cash generative businesses has had banks that have banked it for years and has a range of divisions and assets that they could sell to alleviate short-term cash concerns and then clearly once they've sorted out their short-term mess the ability to go back to generating lots of cash so bought a big stake in that we bought eight percent of the company but to because just that was a sort of meamble for sure answer your actual question sorry nick which is that which is that in the d d d and d on uh, dd on yeah. that you know i've i've been we've been speaking to customers uh competitors we've spoken to former management former board members we've been i went up to see the new warehouse which hardly anyone's done uh, apparently apparently maybe might be the only person that's done that um we've we've interviewed range of people at the company um you know a lot of and and the thing is you can um sadly the one of the broke one of the small cap brokers who will remain nameless who actually when it collapsed massively slashed their recommendation and their price target saying it might be worth 35 million rather than 25 million we think it's worth 180 million mm -hmm. um and because again it became too small too embarrassing when you move on to larger companies that's yep. that sort of thing yep. so it's it's blind space and you can really you can really do extra work the concentration effect within rockwood is super important to this if i was running an 80 stock small cap um fund I would never be able to afford the time to do the level of due diligence we're doing now at Rockwood on new investments, where it where you can really get to really get under the bonnet to really understand all the risks. It's almost like private equity in a quoted environment. It it, it is, and that's what Gresham House call it. So it's definitely when they that's what they would call this approach. I think we use private equity techniques uh, to an extent, uh, but it's not a private equity fund. I think where it's sim where these techniques are similar are. We genuinely take a medium-term view. Uh, we genuinely think very hard about what the exit thesis is going to be at the point of entry, rather than just think, oh, 
someone else will buy it off me once it's yeah. gone up a bit when it's yeah. got more more momentum like many ma- managers do we we do a lot more dd which obviously what private equity do and the other piece which is similar is we take a big stake but private equity do typically control their companies Correct, yeah. which is very different than this approach so we take big stakes so they have to listen to us um, we can have big influence and they can't ignore ignore us so on a number of holdings I've mentioned RM we're at eight but a number of the other holdings in Rockwood the Harwood um, group of funds would own 25 percent 29 percent in 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 central medias um, case in central medias case for instance you know that's one where you mentioned at the start I'm, I'm a non-executive director on it so I'm you know attending all board meetings we have 29.9 percent of the company we've done huge huge amounts of work we are in a strong we're in a much more akin to what a private equity person would understand about that company than a public markets fund manager that might meet them twice a year if they were invested with them, maybe three at best, um, and a non-holder that might not have seen them for three years. So then how concentrated is is uh, the fund? We've got 15 holdings right now, although it's all been quite exciting because two of the holdings um are in bid processes one of which is literally about to complete which was company originally called northbridge industrial services now called crestchick and that literally the that's gone through so we'll get our cash from that it's been a we've done four times our money Mm -hmm. in the stock it's been a really good return we got really rolled sleeves rolled up harwood were on the board it's been a fantastic case study really for our approach and we let it run We'd, yeah. we'd, I'd learnt from my ash teds. Yeah. Where maybe I felt very. Or even your tallows. Even my tallows. Yes, you can see the thing. So we, know we let it run this time and it got up as a result of 30% of the fund. So we're about to get 30% of the fund back in cash. Secondly, we bought one of the um, growth IPOs of 2021 that had collapsed called Seraphine. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it hasn't been a particularly great investment we yeah. bought a smaller position we were looking to monitor it to maybe put more in once we'd bottomed out exactly uh, what the risks were and that's been bid for as well uh, and that'll disappear so we'll go down to 13 and i'm currently got a very very exciting pipeline yeah. of stocks as you can imagine in this space um to to deploy and they're all con- it's quite fun because you're, you're sort of competing for competing for for the capital decision which we'll be making cautiously over the rest of this year because I'd be interested in your views nick but it's it started pretty punchily uh in january and early february in markets so a few of the things that we're watching have moved pretty aggressively already and probably dropped down the list or even in a couple one instance definitely off off the list which is up over 100 percent in literally two months yeah. so. So, so why do you think the market has had such a strong start to 23 i think it must be a combination of of two things i think uh, or three things firstly sentiment was very very extreme yeah at the end of last yeah, year probably best indicated by say the merrill lynch survey where it was at zero it goes yeah. from zero to 100 uh, but maybe more sophisticatedly in things like vix things like yeah. um uh, options pricing and things like that that we we monitor so i think sentiment got very extreme that in itself though can create can create bear market rallies um, but isn't really sufficient to drive a sustained rally the second piece is obviously people were very concerned we're going into recession and um, the inverted yield curve i think pretty good 
uh, indicator. Yeah. Yeah. Equally, ISM below 50, pretty good indicator. Um, and context with the energy price squeeze, all the rest of it, sent, you know, it wasn't just investor sentiment, consumer sentiment, mm, feels as if we could go into recession or are going to go into recession uh, here. So then there's a question of um, how deep is that going to be? And I think at the moment, people seem to be, oh, it might not be that that strong. It might be just a, quite a shallow well, I suppose, recession. I suppose we haven't had the harsh winter that we all expected, so therefore energy prices are likely, well, certainly you, European gas prices have fallen and I'd like to think that that's mm. reflected in people's bills. Uh, the high street had a fairly decent Christmas or a better Christmas than, than expected. And the Fed and I guess the, you know, the Bank of England will follow in that interest rates are, are likely to, to peak in the short term. So, Well, this is the piece. It's the last piece that's the most... I'd agree with all the other points. I think it's the last piece which the market maybe being um, complacent about. I just, just to be absolutely clear, m one of my heroes is Howard Marks. We'll be mentioning him later, I'm sure. But I, you know, forecasting is folly when it comes to these, when uh, these I'm matters. I'm assuming you're talking about the financier, not the, not the Oxford-educated drug smuggler. C correct, <laughs> yes. The, the great investor of Oak Tree. Um, no. And he, you know, he, yeah, he, he's written some amazing pieces about how, how uh, forecasting is folly. It, particularly in these matters. So we are kind of um, doing this as an amiable podcast rather than taking to, to uh, go as gospel what I expect. However, it is my view that currently people are think it's just too easy that inflation will just come back down and it's so interest rates will come back down and then and then that would be that would be that would definitely mean this was we'd, we'd seen the low mm -hmm. and this is the starts of a new bull market. I'm just not, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think inflation is going to remain much higher than target. And as a result, inf interest rates are not going to come down. Oh, yeah, I think I think you're right and they won't come down. I think maybe, I think you've got two more, certainly in the US, two more hikes and then a plateau and a step back. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I don't think they're going down in, in any time, anytime soon. I guess more importantly, you know, the eyes will have to be on that US data. Mm. I think we have CPI today, don't we? So it'll be interesting post-Christmas. Post yes, how that, how that the, the central down. banks are very they've said it's going to be painful they've made it very clear this is going to be painful they're also very conscious of the 1970s analog where Correct. they thought they'd beaten it and then it then it resurged yeah. and it ended up even higher much more painful for um, everybody and and I think I they, suppose it yeah. also depends on Chinese China opening and mm. supply routes from China easing any form of of supply chain issues as well which we feel that that is beginning to, to unlock and freight we know that freight prices have dropped back to pre-covid levels as well yeah. the, the 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 truth of it is this most of this really just is of no i'm not that interested frankly or well, i am interested but i just don't think it's that relevant to how rockwood will perform I and, agree. I, and i think last year is a good example you kindly reference what happened last year you know we did nav was up in calendar 22 nav was up um to return 10 percent uh, absolute um a market down 32 two percent why because of stock specific outcomes in an inefficient bottom element which you know the the recession the recessionary conditions and the cost of money are relevant um to the valuation backdrop and also the uh, corporate profit performance of all companies to a greater and or lesser sentiment correct yeah but they more for our more value uh, focused approach. Yeah, we we the cost of money is is 
sort of less of an issue than those that have been backing high duration growth stocks. And also because you have long duration, therefore you should flatten the cycles anyway, really. So, well, we don't. Well, we don't. We're not buying long duration stocks. We're buy. We're buy. We're we're buying. Fr- Companies that are generating and drain a lot of free cash. Oh, so let me phrase it: You're holding them for longer periods of time than yeah. maybe maybe your out of the box fund managers. Yes, yes, I think that's I think that's true. So your time horizon, yeah. yeah, a bit like Warren Buffett, I guess. He doesn't buy a share to sell it the next day. There is a there is a long term holding strategy. I think a lot of fund managers know they're meant to tell uh, clients that they invest for. Uh, on a sort of three to five year rolling investment period, but then when you actually look at their turnover, it doesn't correlate to the fact that they say they invest on a three to five year holding period. But it's often not really delved into much, and then if it's delved in at all, they'll reference the stock they've held for the last ten years, which is usually the exception rather than the the um, the, the norm. Closed end funds, though, that we run at Harwood, um, all all of them allow us to have genuinely medium-term and long-term views for businesses as long as they remain creating value, you know, good va- good value themselves as shares. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's our that's no, I think that's your mindset. Advan- I think that's your advantage. Having permanent capital and raising and running the strategy you're running go hand in hand, really. Yeah, I, I've really... I've, feel I found the right strategy for me finally. Uh, found it at, at Gresham and just delighted to be running it now at, at Harwood. It allows me to do the level of due diligence that I thought was being done, going back all the way to um, you know the, the beginning with my accountant, accountancy. And um, that's great. I think it, it allows me to be a value manager and, and uh, pursue that approach. And it allows me to work in small caps, which is the best market I think there is. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't disagree. And again, you have very much a kindred spirit, I'm sure, at, at Harwood as well. In in Christopher. Yes, Christopher uh, Mills, uh, absolute uh, legend. He's just so uh, experienced. Been running money now for over forty years. He's a he's a master practitioner. He has an unrivaled network. Of both corporate um, corporate um, managers, corporate turnaround specialists, non-executive directors, advisors, he has his um, f- feet in more than you know one pond. In as much as his private equity funds are um, have fantastic track records, mm-hmm. have that insight into private markets, also in typically in quite small companies, which is relevant. He um, and he's seen he's seen it he's seen it all. So it's great to be learning from someone like him, um, which I am doing. And uh, it's and also uh, I'm you know hugely grateful for the support that um, he's given to this strategy and and to me. So he he's actually bought personally um, twenty eight point nine percent of Rockwood Strategic. I've bought one percent. Uh, I'd like to buy more. We can't buy more than twenty nine point nine, though. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we have to bid for the company. But we're hoping to grow it, and if we grow it through issuance, I'll absolutely be increasing my 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 investment as much as I can. So he's he's we're very aligned. We're very aligned, which is another important point that we haven't covered in the rest of this. But alignment's just so important in fund management, yeah. and you can only really do that by having skin in the game with 
personal investment that's meaningful in the fund that you manage and um, and actually probably performance fees, um, which I think are very, uh, mot- very motivational, but do, a, if, if constructed fairly, do uh, align great outcomes with um, um, with the cl- with the clients with the underlying investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it sounds like you've uh, you've found your spiritual home. I've, I absolutely, I think so. I, I, I always nervous. Nick, let's be honest. I've been nervous. I've just run through a number of places I've worked over the years. So, but I absolutely don't want to go anywhere else after this. So, this is hopefully the last podcast that we can, do, we can, we can, we can do where oh, we I have know. to talk about average place change. Exactly right. We maybe we have lots more podcasts, but maybe talk about more market market focused rather than Richard focused. Yeah. Um, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. Let's take them individually. Richard, your greatest inspirational mentor? I think I have to say Hugh Sargent. Hugh is an outstanding investor. Um, Listeners should look up the performance over the long term of his uh, recovery fund. He has a UK recovery fund. He has a global recovery fund. Um, And he's got an over 30-year track record where... He has his ups and downs, but long-term investors in Hugh Sargent will struggle to have done better with any other fund manager in the UK. He's, he, what has he taught me? He's, he was just super open-minded about whether there's an opportunity or not. So never closed, would always look at new things with an open, open mind. Very independently minded, so prepared to take the pain when the herd was saying, doing something different or internal pressures, maybe at R&M when I work with him there or elsewhere, would, were more than they should be. He would just you know, steer his, his path. He, he just absolutely obsessed with finding alpha wherever he can find it. And that curiosity uh, really I, I love. Uh, and then he just understands recovery investing, So, which at the end of the day is just spotting when everyone else has given up on a company and um, but actually it's not a i don't know bowler hat maker or a basket weaver yeah. it's it's actually there is a business there that can recover and the outsized return you get from a mean reversion in prof- profitability plus a mean reversion in um, stock market rating gives you outsized uh, returns and he's just great he's taught me so much about that he's also a brilliant uh, person and was great great i loved working with him and then a book which has inspired you? Well, I mentioned the guy earlier. I, I, this doesn't sound, it's not the sort of emotional book that uh, many people might be looking for, but um, when Howard Marks brought out uh, his book called The Most Important Thing, which is essentially an investment book, um, it was just wholly inspirational for me because it's brilliant. It's such a good book on investing, but it also reiterates that Everything you need to do well is is there, is knowing, is 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 in front of you. You can you can do very well, exceptionally well in markets if you just remember the core important things about patience, about um, about the importance of value, and a range of his other lessons that he he leads. And that I I was just very inspired that that the great Howard Marks is saying things that chime with what I know. I've just got to make sure you don't forget any of them. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting their career to follow in your footsteps? I think it's terribly difficult to get into fund management 
Um, so I'm going to assume they've managed to na navigate that through hard work, good degrees, and uh, yeah. excellent interview uh, technique. For me, what discerns the best investors is those that really understand their own and others' emotions and psychology. It's really, really testing yourself. I definitely improved as I worked on this, really understanding what emotional biases you can have as an investor yeah. when you might yourself be being greedy or scared, when you might yourself be placing too much relevance on a piece of information you've just received because you've just received it rather than a piece of information you know from a while ago. Understanding the psychological makeup of, of yourself and then also being able to assess other people's emotions. And it's not taught. You will never go on a training program mm -hmm. really or teach it, but you can read books on it and really get on top of it. I think reading books, investment books, massively. I mean, I did my CFA, I did my ACA, but the amount of real knowledge you can get from reading the great investment books, of which there are a lot out there, just read those just voraciously all the time. I think it really, really helps. And, and I think if I looked at my career, going back on it, I think it's making sure you um, take the opportunity of a lifetime during the lifetime of the opportunity. So, I mean, River Mercantile was only 32, but it was just a great opportunity. A lot of people go, well, that's just too high risk thing to do. But just knowing this is backing yourself and just having a, having a go, being proactive and op taking opportunities when they're in front of you, I think it would be a key to that mindset. Great. Richard, how can listeners get in touch with you? The best way is probably via the website, www.rockwoodstrategic.co.uk. UK. Our phone numbers are on are on there. If uh, you have any trouble, you can email me to rstavely at harbourcapital.co.uk and I'll endeavour to come back to you. Uh, but yeah, we're, uh, we're all, we're all, there's lots of information about how we're going about things on the Rockwood re website. Richard, thank you so much today. It's been fantastic. Really good fun. Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.